The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll and home of the patented and highly anticipated Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you. Hey, dude, did you hear uh, the CEO of IKEA uh, just became prime minister of Sweden? Yeah, uh, it's going to take him a couple of months to put together his cabinet, so... Thank you. Goodbye. Another Duff McKinnon classic. Thank you, Duff, for making us laugh every single Friday. And thanks to the Winnipeggers for bringing us the funny every Thursday, 9 p.m. Eastern, on my Facebook page and YouTube channel. This week, we're talking about bad album covers. There truly are some really funny ones. Uh, wait till you see some of these uh, ridiculous covers. Some lesser-known bands, even some big A-listers like Iron Maiden and Anthrax. Uh, so we go through a lot of these bad album covers, and somebody gets off the band list which is very exciting news. So come hang with Ribo, Spiwi, and I, the Winnipeggers, every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern on my Facebook page and YouTube channel. All right, today, speaking of album covers, I got the man who started a heavy metal movement in the 80s, a movement that started in the aisles of his rock and roll heaven record store in New Jersey. Talking about Johnny Zazula, the man who founded and launched Megaforce Records, the man who signed Metallica, released their first record, Kill Em All. He also gave Anthrax their big break. Instrumental in the careers of so many bands, including mine. That's right, Johnny Z's the guy who signed Fozzie back in 1999. We were the last band Johnny Zazula ever signed to Megaforce Records. Johnny's telling his story and the story of Megaforce from his early days running his record shop to meeting Metallica and bringing them to the East Coast for the first time, being pursued and wooed by Anthrax, uh, having Venom and Anvil play shows in America for the first time, thanks to him, a major label signing his bands, uh, partnering and working with the majors like Atlantic, he talks about the bands he signed that should have been bigger. He feels like Raven, King's X, why he thinks they never caught on. He also talks about the making of Kill 'Em All, his friendship with bassist Cliff Burton, and what happened when Elektra came in and sighed Metallica away. Johnny's got some amazing heavy metal stories about the history of the movement and is still an avid metal fan today. So let's go. A pioneer of the heavy metal scene and the founder of Megaforce Records, Johnny Zazula starts now on Talk is Jericho. One of the true legends of the early days of heavy metal, Johnny Zazula. Uh, it's been a long time coming that we had this chat, and um, there's so much for us to discuss. But first of all, I just wanted to give condolences and say, sadly, we lost Marsha this year. And I was just kind of brought me back to when we worked together 20 odd years ago. And what a, what a great lady she was, as you know. Your partner in so much of all this, 
all these things that you created? Well, it's it's kind of weird right now, besides the fact that I lost a partner of 42 years. And uh, what a partner she was. What a lady she was. Yeah. She was one half of everything, Chris. So I'm having conversations with people over the last two months, and I don't know half the answers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, well, who was that singer for the bad brains that turned everybody onto the word mosh it up, you know? And I'm thinking, who who is that? How could I not know? <laughs> right. But Marshall went, Johnny. Yeah. It's a sadness for that and many other things. Thanks for bringing her up, Chris. Yeah, man. Like I said, that's kind of what, what got me thinking about you again after all these years. And obviously, super tight with Scott and Charlie from Anthrax and, and you know, with, with Lars and everybody. So, so when Marsha passed, I went and read your book, uh, Heavy Tales, and just kind of became reacquainted with all the, all the things that you did. But one of the funny thing is that we can talk about right off the bat, and I didn't realize it until... I read about in your book is that you actually one of the last bands you signed was my band Fozzy. Oh, <laughs> Fozzy, which is so funny because the way it started, and I don't know if you know, now we're like a bona fide radio band. We have five top 30 singles in the last few years and three top tens. And one of our singles is about to go gold. So you're the one who actually started all of this way back when we were just doing covers. Well, they said I have $60 million years. I guess Fozzie was the <laughs> apex of my career. <laughs> I, I got to tell you something, Chris. I don't know what kind of language you could use on the show, so I won't go crazy. You can, whatever you but want. But that was the biggest pile of you-know-what, that Fozzie story when you were starting that band. Right. Uh, you got lost in Japan, <laughs> and all the bands came over and were stealing your material, and they were coming back with your material. <laughs> yeah. Too much for words. I said, this guy's never going to pull this thing off, man. <laughs> it's funny, though, because we actually did it for a couple of years. But you guys, we, we made a documentary uh, about it, uh, about the band, a mockumentary. And they played that thing on MTV over and over and over again. Like when back when that came out, Ozzy and Zach Wilde were watching that on their tour bus. Ozzy loves that fucking video. And you guys were in it commenting on everything it was just like you said just a total complete comedic crazy thing and here we are still 20 years later still doing it well a different thing yes yeah, still doing the band but you are very very relevant my friend very relevant could i can i say something i of all the podcasts i listened to the other day i listened to believe it or not the Dean malenko all right and you know that touched me very, very much, because I, uh, right now, can't walk. Oh, wow. You may not know that. I didn't know that. I'm getting around on a walker, and I'm taking treatments, and I'm fighting it, just like Dean. I'm not shaking yet or anything. I don't have Parkinson's. I have a form of MS. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, but I'm still groovy and cool, and everything is wonderful. I can't get up and run. My only problem is wondering about where, how do I get to the bathroom when I fly to Hawaii? You know, <laughs> that's like my big thing. What do I do when I go to a restaurant? You know, ah. <laughs> has this been something you've been dealing with for a few years? No, uh, basically I thought it was a bad back. Mm -hmm. And then it turned out that I went to a neurologist and another neurologist and another neurologist. And they all told me I had the same thing. 
I've been going for treatments now for four months. It's all new. And is it something that, something that you're able to, to deal with the, when you get these treatments? Is it helping? Yeah. I don't know yet. Right. I don't know yet. You know, it's all too young. It's all too early. My big thing now is I want to exercise and, and do it that way and come back that way as well. Because this makes you not want to do any exercise. You get so tired and so lazy and so nothing. So uh, I didn't want to dwell on that, but it, it really affected me how Dean was hanging in there. Also, all the great things I learned about Dean that I didn't know about Dean. I didn't know about Japan and all that. Right, right. Well, yeah, he, he'd been doing it for so long before he even got to the States, but I mean, that's one thing that's cool about doing the kind of the long form podcast and we're going to do one right now to kind of talk about the entire history. Uh, and I, I appreciate you letting us know about your health situation because a lot of times people don't want to talk about that. You know what I mean? But it's important because it, we all have our issues that it's good to kind of get out in the open. Well, that and being batshit crazy you got two things, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, let's take a couple steps back, Johnny, because you and I have never, never talked about this kind of in detail. About how, what I mentioned earlier, and you've got the big kill em all poster on your wall. I mean, you were the guy that, that you know, not only signed Fozzie, but you signed Metallica and Anthrax and Overkill and brought Anvil over from Canada and Raven. And you really did start a whole movement for heavy metal back in the early 80s. How does, how does that seem to you now in 2021 when heavy metal is such a staple of every radio station and every sports game and seek and destroy, they'll play it at the freaking you know, uh, Tampa Bay Bucks game in between plays. And you kind of were the guy that, that capitalized on this and, and, and thought this music could be mainstream. And here you are 40 years later and you were right. It's one of the most popular types of music ever. Well, that's the whole key. I was right. I really believed it then. Mm -hmm. You know, I saw Metallica headlining at Woodstock. I saw Metallica at the Isle of Wight. I saw Metallica at Madison Square Garden. But I saw Anthrax also achieving. I saw bands like Testament achieving, Overkill achieving. Some of the bands didn't make it. Some of the bands did make it. I signed a band that I felt should be the biggest band there ever was. Well, actually, it was Marshall signing King's X. Mm, wow. What a signing that was. And, you know, we sold... 202,000 records in my of one record in my reign. And we were told what a failure we had. <laughs> 202,000 records and a number two record in the country on radio. And I was told how I have to step it up. So that's the world that we lived in. And today I look back, if that's the question, I'm in total disbelief, Chris. Mm. Now I believe it was all going to happen, but I find it very hard to believe it was me. You were the conduit in a lot of ways. What did you see in that type of music? I guess most specifically, in, in, well, you were, you did stuff before Metallica, but let's just say Metallica in general. What did you see in this band that you thought could cross over into the mainstream? Well, the first thing you have to say is the band was fresh. Mm. They were non-cliche. They were heavy as hell. Right. And one of the reasons I predicted this music to come and take over the world as it has done today is because I believe that heavy metal music is foreground music. There's a big difference between foreground music, which causes an action and makes you respond, and background music, where who could give a hoot about it? 
It's just doing its purpose and calming you down. Hmm. I don't want to be calm. I want to be like this all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But heavy metal is the epitome of, of a foreground music that responds in action. And when it's really, really good, it's going to respond to very good reaction. Hmm. And we gave the world very, very good heavy metal from the beginning, from the very beginning with Anvil. That was amazing stuff, that Metal on Metal album. Agreed. I don't know if people appreciate what was on that album. And the first two Raven, the first four Raven albums were absolutely unbelievable. And what's funny, not funny, but real serious, is that the new Raven album, Metal City, stands up to everything great. Mm. The New Testament album stands up to everything great. There's a song on it, Ishtar at the Gates. Unbelievable. Now, people who think I'm not listening right now, they're out of their mind because I'm listening to everything, you know, and I have my favorites now and I have, I'm still in it. So if anybody asks me, What's relevant, which don't ask me right now because I'm having a mind fart. <laughs> I'm prepared usually. So when you talk about Anvil, like when you guys had, had your, your record store, Rock and Roll Heaven, in, in the flea market, and were you bringing like a band like Anvil down to come play the flea market or would you kind of book them for shows or how did that whole scene start for you? Well, the whole thing started at the Rock and Roll Heaven store where someone came up to me, Ray Dill the head of the Old Bridge Militia, by the way. <laughs> and Ray was very influential on me back then. And he said to me, Johnny, you know, you're bringing in all these albums. You think you could bring a band in? I go, where am I going to play a band? What am I going to do? I know nothing about this stuff. And he goes, right here in the back of the flea market, there's a little place with a little stage you could put a show on in there it holds about 800 people 800 people never to the show anvil anvil where's your 800 you know what i'm saying 800 people who are they (laughs) and what happened was i got on the phone and i called the first number i could find on the back of a record and it had the name of the record company owner al Mayer, canadian And I said, Al, whose biggest thing was Gordon Lightfoot before Anvil. I said, Al, can I have this band play over here? Next thing you know, Anvil came to America and we were doing shows. Now, to answer you, the first show was luckily a break even. Even though they turned off the power in my house and I came home to nothing. True. I came home to a dark house with a babysitter and a baby. Because you couldn't pay the power bill or why? I couldn't pay the power bill because everything was on the show. Gotcha. Ah, I see. Everything was on the show. Plus my head. I had to feed people too. What was that? I got there. We had so much power. We blew out the flea market power while it was going. I had to bring in a generator, $500 to bring in a generator. What's a generator? (laughs) Right. Come on down. Come on. Come on. I came out alive. I don't even know what the question is anymore, but I'm so dumbfounded. All of this stuff is the question. I'm just talking about how you kind of created this scene. So, so now you now you prove you created this scene at least in New Jersey in that area. Right. So you prove you can do shows and kind of prove that because what you would do is you would import records from Europe, let's say, and put them on sale at your store, like a specialty shop, right? Correct. So, I, I know you've told the story a lot of times, but we've never talked about it before. 
Anthrax A on the East Coast is trying to get you to sign them. Also on the West Coast, there's a band called Metallica. How do you hear about Anthrax and how do you hear about Metallica? Well, again, it's rock and roll heaven. That little flea market store with a cassette player that played one cassette and not two and had a two cassette machine with speakers that were broken. I went <laughs> to the bass line, which I found out later on was used by Al Jorgensen on all his records. He thought it was an amazing discovery. Then a bass will go, that sounds great. Let's put it on the record. What happened was the bands wanted to come back and then the bands wanted to play together. Mm-hmm. So we did the Halloween Headbanger Ball. We started that with Anvil, Raven, and Riot. Gotcha. 1,200 people or whatever showed up at that thing. You know, wow, what was that? Who were these people? What's going on? They have a dragon that blows smoke in the lobby of their audience, you know, of the lobby when you walk in and they have best bonded suit contests and a headless motorcycle driver driving off the stage and stinking up the place. We started doing the shows with the bands in multiple venues. Right. And by the time Metallica was coming, we had Venom coming to the United States. We were bringing them. We had The Rods with Vandenberg. We had Twisted Sister at the Fountain Casino in New Jersey. We had just shows everywhere. Plus, we said we had some opportunities to play Metallica by themselves. And put a little band that's bothering us all over the place called Anthrax on with them. Mm -hmm. It just built and built and built and built till it hit the Roseland, where I don't know, 2003, I don't know how many people were at the Roseland, but that place was packed. And everybody in New York was there. Everybody in New York was there. And uh, that was the show where Raven were uh, noticed by Atlantic. Anthrax noticed and later signed by Island. And of course, Metallica was signed by Electro Records at that event. But we had a triple header if you look at one at it one way. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Well, let's go back a bit, though. So because so, you started Megaforce Records in order to release the Metallica record? Is, were they kind of hand in hand? Yes. Metallica brought the label. The label idea brought Metallica, and uh, basically it was hand-in-hand. We didn't know what even to name the label. I talk about it, I think, in the book a little bit. We were downtown on 42nd Street in Times Square in New York City, and I see the Vigilante is playing, which was the name of the label. I said, look at that, Marsha, the name of our record company, and it's playing underneath the Megaforce. I said, whoa, the Vigilante. (laughs) The Megaforce. <laughs> so I basically uh, said the name of this label is the Megaforce. Now, as soon as the Megaforce people, marketing company, who must have been metalheads, heard that we were doing this, they sent us all these beautiful uh, stickers and 
just wonderful things to use as marketing. And we would send them out with our packages and everything. And people would say, wow, these Megaforce guys, they're serious. They got big bucks. Look what they're using for marketing, you know, all this fancy stuff. People started paying attention. And not to mention that Metallica had a little bit to do with it. You know, uh, at first, nobody liked it in the real world of music. I mean, all the kids, right? the punters loved it. But the majors, the A&R guys, the record store owners, until it started to sell on their shelves, they had no idea what this record was. They just thought it was too fast and, and too th- too heavy? They thought it was... <laughs> right. <laughs> thug, 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 thug. You know, um, much too heavy. Yeah, much too heavy, much too fast, and uh, much too brutal. But that's the way everybody wanted it. It was apparent. What did you, uh, what was your first impressions when you first met Metallica when they came across country to, to come stay with you and record with you? Well, they were a wild and crazy bunch of guys. To talk about a punk attitude, to talk about a thrashing mentality is an understatement when describing the guys, the boys, as they came into my house. They were really fresh, they were really loose, and they were really unhinged. Hmm. They just wanted to have some drinks, and they wanted to get on with the party, and they just wanted to keep on going. And the first thing they wanted, we thought, and we're correct, was to take them down to Rock and Roll Heaven, the record store. (laughs) So they came down, and they all took their fifth or quart off the tray right in the front of my house. I had it there. It wasn't there when they left. Certain people, I won't say who, were throwing up in front of the flea market, and they knew who they were and who they belonged to, and they gave me a little grief. (laughs) You know, they were just bent over with the bottle and just blasting away. And that was uh, pretty interesting and uh, caused me, as I said, quite a bunch of grief. If they only knew who it was that was throwing up all over the place and making a mess. (laughs) Right. They talk about it today. They say to me, remember, I had booth 43. I was in there in booth 43. I was Laney's undergarments for kids. <laughs> so did you have a lot of role in kind of the development of the band, you know, as they were recording? Were you kind of the ipso facto man- manager at that point? That's what was so beautiful about it. I was so one-on-one with Lars and James especially laws. We would talk like father and son at sometimes, you know, we went through everything and we always made the law never, ever be cliche. Mm-hmm. I say it in every, every time I do anything on the air, you know, that was the word, never be cliche, never do what other people do, stick to your guns, be yourself. What can we do now that wasn't done before? A lot of bands talk about it, but not a lot of bands do it. And we went in the studio and did it. The album cover behind me. By the way, I created that and went in and had it shot to look like that. Right on. The acne on the photographs. That was all natural and no bullshit. No bullshit. No poser shit. Everything was right on. And that's the way we did it. You see this picture. It's not its permanent place. It's The killer ball poster is going to be a little bit higher. We just moved today. The You want to call it a man cave where Marsha contributed. So it's not really a man cave. It's their cave. But we took it all from upstairs 
We moved it downstairs so I could get in because I can't get upstairs anymore. So the first thing we put behind me was to kill them all for you, Chris. Well, thank you. But look, this is something very interesting, though, Johnny. It's something very interesting. No, I had no idea that you came up with the concept of the kill them all cover. So explain what the visual means to you. I mean, obviously, it's one of the heaviest images in metal history. But what were you thinking when you came up with the concept? Well, I came up with a, lit, a lighting table. And basically, someone's head just got smashed in by a hammer. Yeah. And they put the hammer down on the table. And that's the blood dripping off the hammer. That, by the way, was as simple as it was. And we would do the cover in that kind of... James came up with the border and the kill them all. Gotcha. You know, that came around the art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They came up with the logo, of course. And that made the cover. How about the first Anthrax cover? How do you explain that? I don't explain that. I don't <laughs> explain that. I take no credit for that. I take no credit for that one. You know, Anthrax, I have had a lot of hands-on with Anthrax through the years. But the first album was really Carl Kennedy and the producer mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Anthrax. Because I didn't know I was going to get what I got on Fistful of Metal. And the first time I walked into that studio, full blast, metal thrashing mad laid on my head. Yeah. I said, wow, my lads, those guys, they delivered. <laughs> they delivered. I was jumping around the studio, man, like uh, Anatefo, whatever that was, and Filler on the Roof. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, I was jumping around like, wow, they did it. I was so proud of them because they really had to prove to me that they can make that album. Is that because they were just hanging around you all the time, bothering you to sign them sort of thing? They didn't quite hit the mark. They just got it on Soldiers of Metal. Mm. And I just wasn't sure. I knew it, but I just didn't have it 100%. I was like 97%. Not that bad, 97. Not bad. Not bad at all. But I wasn't 100, and I live on 100. And they brought me to 100, and they were absolutely great. Then it was time for Anthrax to get them on the road. Another thing labels didn't do, Chris, we had no money, yet we put our bands on the road mm. to tour the entire United States of America. We went and got agents for them. We got agents to believe in them, not just book them, to like, Feel they're part of a movement. We got agents to feel that. Yeah. And it was wonderful. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com. T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. When kind of the, the ball started rolling like when you when you released Kill Em All, did it sell more than you expected? Was it a slow seller at first that snowballed over time? I really didn't know what it was going to do. I mean, I was that young and everything was such an unknown. I just knew it would. And it sold... I remember the first 5,000 right out of the box. Hmm. And I had to make another 2,000. And I kept on selling them. 
another 1,200, another 7,000. Meanwhile, Raven is like 27,000, you know, going to 30. Raven was showing me the way. Mm. It just that uh, all for one album just was doing amazing. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. And it, it actually was the killer album on Megaforce at the time. Really? Yes, it was all for one. And this is all news, by the way. Oh, not old news, all news. Mm-hmm. Kill them all caught up. And it, it wasn't really until uh, we got to around the Roseland that they were in the 30s, Metallica. We, we, keep, we keep mentioning Raven, and I was a huge Raven fan. Still am, but, but when you mentioned that all for one, you know, Live at the Inferno, that time frame. What was it that, that kept Raven from getting, getting to the next level, do you think? Well, Chris, this is a sadness that I lived with my whole life. And I never fought for them as much as I wanted to fight for them. But basically, I was not a one-man company. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really talk about it, but I, they went another direction that was asked of them to go on. Musically. Musically and commercially. Right, right, right. They got a very nice deal with Atlantic Records. And we had two bands. We had Anthrax and we had Raven. Still, Metallica was gone. And I had to make a decision. Because my partner wasn't that thrilled about where I was going with Anthrax and the music they were playing. He didn't really get it. Mm -hmm. And I thought Raven were really taking a move to another dimension that I wasn't getting. And I was so involved with Anthrax at the time, really knee deep, that I didn't fight hard enough for my beliefs in in Raven. I I always say it's my fault, even though it's not my fault. I I feel that uh, they changed their direction in their music. They were not faster than the speed of light, than sound. Mm-hmm. Songs like Rock Until You Drop, Hard Ride. If they would have kept it up, I felt they had a really great chance. Maybe not even to be like a heavy metal band in the thrashing, but to be like an off-colored who. Yeah, just a rock and roll, a heavy rock and roll band for sure. Great rock and roll band. The greatest rock and roll band. And do you want to know something? I think this pandemic really screwed them. Because as I said, I don't know if you heard the album, Chris, but Metal City. I heard the first song from it, the, the video they did for it. It was great. The whole album yeah. is great. And I felt that they could have just toured even the album. To tour an album for the first time in a while would be amazing with somebody all these. So they, they didn't have a chance to come back yet. And I think they're going to come back because they deserve it so on, on this record. And uh, I got my prayers out there. For those boys. Do you find that that happened quite a bit? If I'm thinking of a lot of my favorite bands back in that time frame from Raven, uh, you mentioned Anvil, you're talking about Saxon, you know, Lizzie Borden, Loudness. I did. <laughs> loudness. Oh. They, they would sign with major labels and then the whole direction of the music would change. The look would change. I mean, Raven has now got makeup on and, and Wacko's got, you know, flamethrowers shooting off the top of his of his hockey helmet like that kind of turned off their hardcore fans and didn't seem like it, it was worth it to for the new ones that they made it was probably one as many as, as they were hoping for well as i said it, it was a misdirection mm-hmm. and there was nobody there to say anything and there was somebody but i love the fellow who was my partner and he had a vision 
and it was a go-get-em vision. If it would have worked, it would have been smoking. Unfortunately, when you go on the edge, sometimes it don't work. Right. And it don't smoke. And unfortunately, it didn't smoke, and that's what happened, and everybody got caught in that fire. And as I keep saying, they're still great. Mm -hmm. Don't give up on Raven, whatever you do. They're a magnificent band. Yeah, still a fan. When you're talking about Kill 'Em All and Ride the Lightning, and you're, you're very much involved with Metallica, was it hard for you to have to let them go, shall we say, to from Megaforce over to Elektra, which you mentioned? Well, first of all, Ride the Lightning, I tried to get involved in. I was very involved in Kill 'Em All, mm-hmm. but I, I wasn't involved that much in Ride the Lightning at all. It was a terrible loss. On top of CIDP, which is my form of MS. <laughs> I suffer from massive, massive depression. Ah, <laughs> uh, gotcha. <laughs> gotcha. And that, that album cover, Kill Them All, man. It was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> but you want to know something? Uh, I had a friend, an agent by the name of Jeff Rowland, who came up to me and he said to me at the show, he goes, Johnny, you got too many bands. Concentrate on one and take it all the way and then take on another one at a young age. Don't have three and all that responsibility and and all that brain power you need. It's just too much. You're going to get hurt. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened. And uh, do I miss it? Did I miss it? Do I miss it today? Sure. But, you know, life deals you what it deals you, Chris. Mm -hmm. You got to run with it. You know, I gave up. I didn't give up. I didn't have a Metallica anymore, but I gained the Megaforce Records. Right. I gained an Anthrax. You know, Anthrax never went platinum except maybe the uh, Attack of the Killer Bees may have. I'm not sure. But uh, they went gold on everything, I believe. I, I never got a gold album for uh, the second album, but it may have be gold now. <laughs> it was a great reward. I got to see them headline Madison Square Garden. You know, when we when we played that... Uh, Clash of the Titans. Clash of the Titans. You know, they had their shot that night. Whatever it was, I got to see a lot of good things. I got to see the Public Enemy Anthrax tour, which was as good as any tour I've been on. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the shows were Lollapalooza quality. They were just really powerful. So uh, it's all been good, man, if you're asking. I don't know what you're asking, but I'm telling <laughs> No, no, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you've got such a long history, and it's, it's really interesting to me you know, starting this independent record company, but then suddenly you have a, a, a relationship with Atlantic Records. And that was something I found very interesting, the dichotomy of having these bands on your label, but they're also on Atlantic distribution. And you're kind of caught in the middle at times fighting. Oh, yeah. yeah. I had a theory that worked for me for many years. Independent bands that belong independent should stay independent. Great point. Because if they go major, they're going to get blown away. Their majors are not going to know what to do. They're going to think they're noise. They're going to think they're crap. Why are you even bothering? Right. You're wasting everybody's time. Then there were the bands that were big enough to get a boost of sales like 20000 overnight, like a testament. Mm-hmm. Like testament, for example, was at Atlantic. And somebody was joking me, uh, a fellow by the name of Jason Flom who became a big boy, he came up to me and said, Johnny, you don't sell any records. You seem to sell 27 records, 27,000 records on Megaforce. 
and then you get caught in a sandwich. I said, yeah, the way Atlantic treats my bands, how am I supposed to sell more than 27000 I can't find one in my own store near my house. Mm-hmm. So the next day I went, I found records near my house at The Wiz. If, if you can remember a place called The Wiz. Yeah, The Wiz, yeah. Then I went into the office with Jason. I just took him for a walk in to see David Glue, who was the vice president, became the head of Epic after that. And David said, what if I give you a little money? What could you do? Now, a little money wasn't $100,000 to break a band at retail. He gave me approval for $5,000. That's what I had to deal with. And he was my best friend, David Glue. Hmm. I went into the office of the guy in charge of retail. I said, I got five grand. I'm putting it all on Transworld. What can we do? He took a liking to me. He started laughing. He goes, I'll see what I can do, Johnny. He takes it, puts it on Transworld. Lo and behold, Transworld ordered 20,000 records, one store, one run chain. One chain. I go back into David Glue the next week. He goes, Johnny, 47,000 records plus. What happened? What did they do? I said, I put the 5,000 on Transworld. And all of a sudden, Overkill started selling records. We almost went, almost went gold with Ace Freely. Hmm. You know, Ace Freely was very sad. We got to like 470,000 records. And then we had to race for Ace to bump up the gold to have our first gold record. And as we kept on spending, they kept on returning. <laughs> I'm like at 430, spending millions of dollars. <laughs> and they're going, Johnny, you idiot. Johnny, you idiot. You didn't know. You know, so you got you got all that kind of stuff in your life. That's my relationships. And let me just finish this, Chris. Then there was the middle of the roads, which I took to Caroline to distribute my independence. Right. So it was and it was majors, independence, and they all did well. They all flourished. Like you said, there, there was a real strategy back then to, to owning a record company and working with the majors and. Obviously, that's all gone now. Those, those those days are gone. Oh, but you really had to be smart, like you said. You get five thousand dollars, and we're laughing at it. But yet here you are. You turn five thousand into twenty thousand plus because you had a great strategy and knew uh, the people that you were working with, right? You got to know when to hold. <laughs> you yeah. got to know when to fold. Right. Everything has to be people loving you. I built my whole business on love. I really believe that. There are people who think I'm crazy. There are people who hate me, of course. Everybody has to hate somebody. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of love when you speak about Marsha and John Zazula. Mm-hmm. And people really enjoyed us because we tried to make the business fun again. We tried to put the fun into rock and roll, into heavy metal. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. mentioned uh, King's X. That's a band that uh, didn't reach the potential that we all thought they could. Uh, it was the sound too eclectic. 
wrong place, wrong time. What are your theories on that? Because they were awesome. I mean, they still are. I believe King's X wrote great songs, but they never wrote the magic hit. Mm. They never wrote the magic hit. Even before I signed King's X to Megaforce, Marshall was digging them because Marsha dug their sound. She loved the detuning. Mm-hmm. She loved all that. And I was looking for the song. I was at a point with Atlantic Records where I, too, was working with Doug Morris and looking for the song. And they delivered very close, but they never delivered the song. A lot of bands just say don't have the song, but who are they? Even ACDC have quite a few, you know, and they were a rocking band. You know, I just say that. I just went and saw King's X not too long ago, before the pandemic not too long ago. And Doug does a song called Pray For Me. That song was about the best song I've heard in years. It blew me from here to kingdom come. But it wouldn't get arrested on the radio. Hmm. And we had a number two song on the radio. I think Over My Head on music. Yeah, Over My Head, that's the one, yeah. I think was the number two song. And... It didn't translate. Didn't translate to sales. Correct. Correct. I had him and spoke of ACDC. I got him on the ACDC tour. Wow, right. It just didn't translate. They had their crowd and that was it. Their crowd. How were you able to get King's X on an ACDC tour? I mean, that's quite a coup. Connections, right? Connections and getting agents to love your band and see the vision in your band and believing they could break no matter what. Mm-hmm. You know, I found that my whole career, as I mentioned earlier, was full of love and getting people to believe. What uh, what other bands did you have on Megaforce that, that fell into that King's X category that you feel should have been much bigger than they were? Well, there was a band called Prophet, who we had Spencer Prophet, who did uh, Come Feel the Noise. Yeah. Uh, we had Spencer produce the album, great album, Cycle of the Moon. And it went absolutely... Uh, nowhere. Unfortunately, a lot of the rock signings, people didn't want rock and roll from Megaforce Records. They wanted thrash. Oh, that's an interesting point. So you're saying because it came out on Megaforce, people thought that everything from that label would be heavy and thrashy. And when they got it and it wasn't, it went... Gotcha. It's a good thing that you've defined your brand, but it's a bad thing if you're trying to branch out, right? It didn't work. It didn't even work on T.T. Quick, the poor band. Yeah. What a band that was. And, and they got demolished. You know, Icon, demolished. <laughs> I mean, not even, they didn't even get their foot out on the ground. Demolished. It got to the point where Atlantic says, well, you, that's what we put out. We put out the winger. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I see. So they don't want their boutique thrash label to be putting out the icons of the world. They didn't know why. They didn't understand why. They didn't know why I wanted to be like them. They thought I wasn't equipped to be like them. They didn't want to be bothered with the extra space to work those records at radio. So what what do you do then? Just try and focus in more on just the thrash bands? I mean, because like you said, you had some... Fight them. Fight them. What did I do? I, I told you I'm a sick person. I came with John Bayless, a classical pianist, a protege of Leonard Bernstein, the greatest, who led the New York Philharmonic 
and I put out a Springsteen concerto. Bruce Springsteen music set to classical music. Now, whatever you want to say, I sold 8,000 of those records and nobody would even put it in a store. Hmm. Not Atlantic. Nobody would let Atlantic because it wasn't classical and it wasn't pop goes to the movies. Right. No place to put it. Where am I going to put this? On the Springsteen? Oh, no, that ain't going there. So that's the story of John Marshall and the, ma- and the majors. We had um, great moments, you know, and when we went outside as a manager, it was very weird. We had a band called Mind Funk on Epic. We sold 150,000 records and got dropped because we didn't sound enough like Pearl Jam hmm. and put me on the street trying to sell them their sec- sell their second album. Murder. But I sold 3 million albums with Ministry. That's huge. Psalm 69 and, and Filth Pig, plus all over the world, a million plus, where they sold 50,000s and maybe 60,000s. In America, they sold 300,000 to 3 million. We had a great run with Ministry as management. Hmm. You know, we were a good management team, too. Can't be thought of as just a record company. Right. You had to expand, especially when you're talking about the 90s when you mentioned like Pearl Jam and Grunge came in and it did take a big chunk out of metal and out of thrash. I mean, it still existed, but not not the same way. Look what it did to poor Metallica, you know? I mean, God, hmm. it, it made everybody so chronic and horrible and really did terrible things to people's lives. I sold Megaforce records. I was so depressed. I couldn't stand that music. I said, I've had enough of this shit. You know, I'm gone. That's the way it was. I even managed Tad from Seattle, hmm. which had him signed to Electra. The big guy. Big guy, Lumberjack, had him signed to Electra, uh, to, uh, I think, Electra. Yeah. Electra Records, I signed Tad. Hmm. Oh, my goodness. A lot of 1992, though, was the peak for Lollapalooza number two, where we had Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. And Ice Cube opened for us. Ministry. Mm, right, Ministry, right. And the closing band was Red Hot Chili Peppers. And that was a great story, the Red Hot Chili Peppers story, because uh, who was the, oh, my God, who's that great producer? And uh, Ruben, Rick Ruben. Rick. Rick was chasing me all over to produce an Al Jorgensen record. Oh, okay. He and Jorgensen would have been interesting, but... You don't tell Al Jorgensen, who's a producer, that another producer is going to produce his stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> it don't work at all. Yeah. That's a bad one. But one night in Chicago, we go to a Star Top Diner or whatever that restaurant is for some skate. And we're eating. And who's sitting right at the next table? Rick Rubin. Hmm. So Rick Rubin pulls out Rubin pulls out a tape, comes up to the table, gives it to Al. He goes, I'd like to hear what I'm doing. Well, two weeks later, I was in the studio producing Give It Away, Give It Away Now <laughs> for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Truth be told. Really? That's your single. Your single of Give It Away Now with five other mixes. By Alan Jorgensen. Alan Jorgensen. Mm-hmm. By the way, I don't even talk about Alan Jorgensen because he's his own world, his own story. But it was the craziest time of my life, the best time of my life. Al Jorgensen. Enough said about Al. <laughs> Please. 
So, so Johnny, as we start to wind down here, I mean, there's still a few more questions to ask, but, but how is it for you? Like, do you still have a relationship with a lot of these bands that, that you kind of discovered and helped through the years? Well, you know, if I want to speak the laws of James, we will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, James was one of the last voices Marsha heard before she left the planet. Oh, that's, that's, that's cool. He called her and what he said to her was so wonderful. I, I could cry now. Just the words were so beautiful right before she passed. Mm. That was James. So that's the relationship. If you ask, it's that kind of thing. It's not about phoniness of both. Right. Charlie Benanti remains a friend. Frankie, Joey, good friends. Chuck Billy is my best friend. Yeah. Chuck's great. You know, and uh, the guys in Overkill are all friends. So I guess we're all friends, but I, I don't go to their house and say, come on, man, let's bust open a bottle of uh, whatever. Yeah. Grey Goose, whatever. Yeah. Grey Goose. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little, a little bit about Overkill because we just mentioned their name. And I think Overkill, in a lot of ways, they kind of get not passed over, but that's more of an underrated band, especially with the longevity that they have and the dedication they have. And you were there with them for so many years as well. Overkill is about the strangest relationship I've ever had. <laughs> I love those guys. I do whatever I can for Overkill any day of the week. And you want to know something? They're a darn good band. Yeah. Really good band, and Bobby is great, and Dee Dee is great, and their new drummer is amazing, you know, and the guitar players are great. I think they must have other things going on in their lives. I don't know, because I don't see them touring as much as they should be. There's something more to it than the music, is what I believe. Yeah, I got you. I believe that uh, if Blitz, Bobby Blitz Ellsworth, the lead singer, could tour more, he would. And I think he's in a band with Portnoy now or somebody. Like a covers thing? Yeah, covers band. Yeah, yeah, something. He was supposed to play it for the Bulldozer Bob bash mm -hmm. in Albridge, but the pandemic wiped that thing out. Messed everything up. Yeah, but I look forward to hearing that. You mentioned you're still a fan of heavy metal. What what newer bands do you, uh, do you like listening to? Well... That's why I said, please don't ask me, because I always forget. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I, I like them. They're not my favorite. But I like Septic Flesh from Greece. I think they're a very interesting band. But it's really screwed up. I don't have my phone with me, because the band that I listen to, I listen to like every day. And I can't think of their names. And I love them so much. They do a cover version of Shout. Cover version of Shout? Yes, they're from, uh, I believe, either Germany or Scandinavia, with an A. Arch Enemy. Arch Enemy. Arch Enemy. There you go. Yes. <laughs> I love Arch Enemy. I love Arch Enemy. And my favorite band right now is blowing me away is Animals Are Leaders. Oh. you got to hear this if you haven't heard it. The best guitar work you're going to hear it's right up there with Demiola and all the big boys. It's heavy as hell. It's slap guitar. It's all kind of stuff. Animals as leaders. Fantastic. Oh, and of course, I still listen to Demo Borgir. Mm -hmm. You know, I love that band to death. But that's the, the more 
deathy, growly stuff. Sure. There's a band called The Absence that's from Florida. They're great. The Absence. And that basically is just a few of the bands I listen to. You'll still see me listening to Crane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm still listening to Nantucket Sleigh Ride, you know, <laughs> by Mountain. Nothing beats the classics, man. I'm still listening to some of those if they're heavy. You know, lay you know songs by Big Bogart and that piece. Nice going back to that stuff. So you know, I have a I have a little radio show. Oh yeah, yes. Honest, John. Could I mention it? Please. It's an online station called Cranium Radio, and I'm on Tuesday at two, Thursday at two, and Saturday at eight. And I do my favorite four songs segment. Something old, something recent, something <laughs> borrowed, and something real decent. And when I play something old, I really go back to the 70s. You know, I got Alice Cooper on there uh, next week. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came real early on the, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, I can't think right now. My mind is not so good either. <laughs> so you got dementia. A lot of years of head banging. Too much headbanging. I, I get there early on records too, and it's a fun show. If anybody cares to listen, Cranium Radio on your dial. The cranium, cranium.com, right? Cranium.com. Thank you. You have to put me where I belong. <laughs> we'll promote that for sure. Last few things. There's, oh, everyone's always kind of so interested in, 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 in Cliff Burton because he spent such a short time on the planet, and you're one of the, one of the, the, the few guys that got to – spend some time with him. What was Cliff like? And do you have any Cliff stories that you remember that kind of bring a smile to your face? Well, Cliff Burton always puts a smile to my face. Yeah. <laughs> I always talk about the fact that I saw Cliff just before he passed the day before. Oh, you were over there. Yeah. I was over with the anthrax. They were opening up for Metallica. I think Metallica run their justice for all. Uh, master puppets. Well, they say master, but they had the lip, the statue up there. Oh, wow. Okay. So uh, that's why I was always, I guess, confused. But the reality was we spent a lot of time together and we partied a little bit together. He was buying some jewelry at the Great Bullfrog, which is a jewelry store right next to a diner where I was eating. We met each other. Mm-hmm. In the past, Cliff was my happy conversations. Cliff was my logical conversations that never got enforced. He was the guy that agreed with me and then disappeared. <laughs> Cliff. But Cliff loved children. And I always tell the story because it's in the book too. At night, my house was a nut house. You had Venom, Anvil, Raven, Metallica, Old Bridge Militia, all the writers, all the tape traders, everybody just, the whole floor was filled with people listening to Gary Moore and and beating on the floor and listening to the music. And Cliff would go upstairs with Ricky, my daughter, and would read her bedtime stories Hmm. and make sure she was comfortable and everything was nice and then come down. And how many people could say that his daughter was read read bedtime stories by Cliff Burton to settle himself Hmm. because Anvil, Raven. Right. <laughs> that was Cliff, and uh, we smoked many a doobie together. <laughs> many a doobie. That was our first common bond. Yeah. Whoever had one, we made sure the other one was partaking. <laughs> it was the law. 
Yeah. And anyway, Cliff Burton, um, when he passed, I had flown to San Francisco to see Testament. And they were rehearsed in a music building, a building that had, let's say, 26 bands rehearsing in it. Mm -hmm. And that night when I went to hear Testament, all I could hear was bass players playing behind every door, anesthesia pulling teeth. Was it a tribute or were they auditioning? I don't know. But whatever it was, it blew my mind. And there's nothing else to be said. I'm sure there's tons to be said, but that's what I have to say. Last story for you, Johnny. You wrote it in your book. And I know this is something I have no recollection of. I guess when when you signed us and we were in New York doing meetings and press and everything that you gave me a ride back into. into Oh, God. (laughs) You complain like you complain like a grandma. (laughs) Why was I complaining like a grandma? I don't know why I decided to do it, but I decided to play Lou Reed all the way home. Not good, not the great movie stuff from the old, but the live rock and roll animal. Because I thought for some reason he'd like the intro and he'd like Sweet Jane. But instead, he's sitting next to me. He's going, this is what you're playing, John? And I remember it because you kept saying it to me. You don't remember, but you kept on saying, it's playing Lou Reed. And, and it stuck with me because I thought I was literally torturing you. So, I, you know me, I'll get worse. <laughs> And you, and you obviously weren't affected at all. So I don't know. I guess the joke was on me, Chris. It's funny because because when you're, I remember like uh, I thought, oh, you're just gonna play like one tune and then switch it to something else. But it just kept going and going. And I was like, I'm here with one of like the pioneers of, of the heavy metal scene in the East Coast. That's right. And he's playing Lou Reed. Listen. Two or three songs, but it was like 45 minutes, 60 minutes through the Lincoln Tunnel. Now we're going past, you know, Meadowlands. Now we're past Asbury Park. That's what I thought you were going through. That's what I thought you were going through. I really believe that you were saying, I can't believe this is who I'm driving with. And this is what he's freaking playing. Well, I'm happy that I entertained you. And I want to say something. I have, I didn't bring it with me, but I have a beautiful picture I'll uh, text it to you and send it. Please. Of you, me, and Marsha. Oh, I'd love that, man. I would love that so much. Yeah, I have that. It's a gorgeous picture. And we're all feeling good. We're backstage and uh, at the wrestling. We're all feeling our oats because of you. Nah. It was a wonderful night. And thank you very much. And it's uh, it's always good seeing you, Chris. It really is, man. Yeah, man. Like I said, when when after she passed, I, po- I posted that little video from, from the Fozzie thing where you're like, these guys had all these crazy jobs. And Martha's like, yeah, these jobs these guys had. And I just remember that time frame. It was, it was a good time. And, and like, like I said, you guys gave us a start. Here we are 20 years later. Very successful. We just opened up for Iron Maiden in a stadium last year in Los Angeles. Wow! It doesn't get any bigger than that. We played with Metallica. We played with Kiss. And it all started with, with John and Marsha, who, who took us on way back when. So thanks to you for giving us a chance and uh, – for always being such good people to us. That's wonderful. I'm happy to hear this. Yes, sir. I'm happy to hear this. Well, listen, Mr. Jericho, away we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Johnny. All right.